This is the Decibel Geek Podcast. the decibel geek podcast folks i know it's been a couple of weeks but i had to milk those vinny vincent episodes for all i could get uh quick update uh for the few of you that for the few of you that have already been listeners of this show i uh, i'm sure you've been thinking where the hell are the new episodes well they the new one is here but like i said i gotta milk this for all i can because before i put that Vin, the first vinny vincent part up on july 4th uh, the most downloads I had in a month, which was June, was 60 downloads in a month because we're a brand new show. And uh, I was proud of those shows regardless of the hits that they got. But for June, we had 60, 60 downloads. For July, which is when I put the two-part Vinnie Vincent special up, we have had over 1,800 downloads uh, since the since all through July. So it was a massive increase. And uh, I obviously knew that there was interest in this story. I didn't know it was going to take off like it did. I need to thank some friends um, at, uh, first of all, Mitch LaFont at Brave Words, who is also interviewed on the special, if you haven't listened to it. Mitch has become a really good friend of mine um, over, the, over the course of the last few months. And was nice enough to uh, provide a link on Brave Words, which is a great site. And Brave Words is also the new uh, news feed that we use on uh, the Decibel Geek website, which is uh, www.dbgeekshow.blogspot.com. Yeah, I'm doing the free thing. Well, that's because I'm broke and I have a family, so piss off if you don't like it. We also um, want to thank uh, all the the KISS sites that picked up the story. Um and uh, even Metal Sludge, who usually slags just about everything. I even had some positive comments from Metal Sludge. So uh, hats off to you guys. I'd have been fine with it even if you slammed it. I'm just happy it got some attention because that's what it's all about. Glad the story got told. Um, I don't know that Yeah, Actually, I mentioned I was in an article uh, the week before from Nashville Scene, the publication. So, um, so yeah, the Vinny episodes were huge successes for me. And uh, I want to thank everyone that downloaded them. All the positive feedback I got that meant meant the world to me. So I appreciate that. Uh, got some uh, negative feedback from certain camps uh, about the from those episodes. Uh, I'm not going to go into specifics because I'm still trying to stay out of court. Um, but yeah, it was it was very good. And um, but I'm happy to move forward with some new episodes. And uh, the new episode for today is uh, Rick Fox, who was a member of Wasp and Steeler with. Ron Keel and Ingve Malmsteen back in the 80s, and he was also in a cool band called Sin. And uh, But Rick has been a part of rock and roll history, and uh, while his, his time in those bands is, is, all, is very cool, uh, I wanted to talk to him more about his history and where he's been and who he's been around, because he, he told me the phrase himself, and he, he's right, he's the Forrest Gump of rock and roll. Uh, because and all kinds of amazing things have happened. Uh, he was there. He was a part of the New York scene in the 70s with the Dolls and Kiss, and uh, even David dated Peter Chris's younger sister, if, I, if I'm correct. 
Um, wrote Kiss's very first review, hung out in the loft when they were building the band, and you're going to hear some of those stories. Um, hung out with the New York Dolls, the, the Ramones, ran in those circles, CBGBs, all that stuff, played in bands there, and then he moved out to uh, Los Angeles in the 80s, and he was there for that explosion with Motley Crue and, all the, and Wasp and, and all that. So he was... Uh, he was a big part of some major events in rock music, and he's, it's almost like a, a rock history book listening to the guy talk. And he, he's, he's a great guy, and uh, I appreciate him coming on so much. And uh, you're going to be hearing more from him in the future. You obviously heard him in the Vinny episode because he had run-ins with Vinny in the 80s. That's just a small morsel of what you're going to hear. This may even wind up being a two-part episode because Rick had so much to share with us. Um also want to welcome uh, producer Mark Bullard on board. He just came a part of, became a part of the uh, Decibel Geek team. Mark uh, has a great background with music and also with marketing and branding, and uh, we're going to try to take this show to the next level, and hopefully he's going to make me sound a lot more professional, tell me what I'm doing wrong and what I could do better, and uh, we're also looking for more people to come on board. If you know anyone that's a writer, blogger, or anything, uh, or that likes to write uh, stuff about rock music at all or uh, be involved in any of the audio or marketing, social networking, anything. We are looking for all of the, air quotes, free help that we can get um, just to to try to make this show bigger and better. So uh, if you want to contact me, contact me at, it's still my old email, it's nashvillerock at live.com. There will be an official Decibel Geek I, uh, email address coming up soon but that's part of what Mark's here for is to get my ass in line and get everything better he's already helped with uh, some ideas for the website and the website's hopping now and Twitter's being updated often and um, we even have the uh, Decibel Geek Facebook fan page set up now please go like it it's at uh, facebook.com slash Decibel Geek very easy to remember uh, follow me on Twitter Decibel Geek Pod uh, so that's all the free plugs I'm going to give. Uh, we need to go ahead and get into the interview with Rick Fox, and I uh, hope you guys will jump on board that have subscribed from the Vinny Podcast, and I'm going to do my best to make this show better every single time you hear it. So without further ado, here's me and Rick. Broadcasting from the rock and metal mecca, Nashville, Tennessee, this is the Decibel Geek Podcast. Quite a bit of news has happened since uh, we talked last. <laughs> yeah, lots, uh, lots has been happening. Well, let's let's talk about where you come from and your beginnings. I'm just going through a great interview you did with Full and Bloom Music, and I can't help but notice this picture of you playing bass as a lizard. <laughs> yeah. Tell me where that where this idea came from. Okay, I was introduced to a, cl- a famous club in New York City that at that point I hadn't heard about, but it was, it was called Max's Kansas City. It was like the, the central spot watering hole, if you will, for the whole New York art crowd, the real hip art crowd, and eventually started to become a place for musicians to hang out. Your Alice Cooper played there, uh, early Aerosmith, Biggie Pop, a lot of these, these famous culture in, in with the in-crowd, um, Andy Warhol-type people, would all congregate there at this place. And it was a restaurant downstairs and a nightclub upstairs. So I was introduced to this one guy who was a guitar player for this band. And, and I guess at the time they were looking for a bass player. And as we got to talking, he, I, I play bass. And he goes, well, why don't you come try out for the band? I said, okay. And I, I went to their loft in, in, in New York. And, um, and I showed me the songs and I played along with them. And I wound up getting the gig. Well, the group was called the Martian Rock Band. 
and they had played there at Max's, I think, once or twice before, so getting in the door was no problem. And, and of course, you don't get free admission upstairs to the club unless you've actually played the club. So then once you know, you're in with the in crowd, so to speak, then you're, you're accepted and you're in free. Their imagery and gimmickry was pretty much limited to the guitar player would wear, I guess, like a silver spacey-looking jumpsuit. They had a huge oversized box that stood on the corner of the stage. It was all silver, had lights on it and a big red lightning bolt on it. And at, at one point in one of the songs, there was a queue of some kind and the door would open. And this guy who was not an actual band member, but he was like a living prop, if you will, and a friend of the band, he would come out with this silver robot mask on with a cape and a, and a ball and chain and you know, play some role within the song of what was going on. It was pretty much like that. And, and uh, the guitar player had a flying V guitar onto which he had he would bolt two two extra wings, four extra wings. So it was like a multi-winged flying V. And on the back behind the headstock and the tuning pegs, he had this little device that you could shoot flames out of. Wow. So, yeah, it, it, it's it, he's... He used to get his supplies. Of course, he shared it with me, and then I got hip to it. It was something you buy in a magic store that sells magic supplies, and it was called Dragon's Breath. And essentially, what Dragon's Breath is is it's a uh, it's a yellow powder that if you pour it on the table and put a match on it, it won't burn. Mm -hmm. The whole key to it is it has to be aerated. That means it has to be spread into the air in its powder form out in the air, and then if you put a, a light a match to it the stuff will, will flame, hmm. cause a big ball of flame or whatever. So the idea is it's a little black uh, plastic bottle, like a nasal spray bottle, but smaller, with a little straw sticking out of it. This, this, made for, this is whole thing is made for this. And you put the powder in this bottle, and you, you confederate in your hand somehow. You hide it. And when you squeeze the bottle, the, the powder shoots out through the tube. And if you have a match at the end of the tube, what you've now got is a flamethrower. Wow. On a small scale. Hmm. So in, in seeing that, I figured, well, you know, I watched Kiss rehearse. I, I knew I watched Gene do the fire tricks. Um, I'm going to try and see if I can go one better. There was a thing called uh, flash paper. A lot, of music, a lot of magicians use this. And it's like an onion skin paper. And, of course, when you bring it to a flame and you, you move your hand with it, it looks like flame is coming out of your hand. So I've got a pair of these. Uh, I'm getting to the lizard thing. Uh, I got a pair of these silver ladies cocktail gloves, lemonade gloves, and I, I got the dragon's breath uh, uh, gimmick, and I put it in the palm of my left hand, and I ran the tube with a cocktail straw extending up out of my left index finger with a little hole in the glove. So what I would do is I'd have that under there, and I'd have candles on the side of my, my amp, like Gene did, and uh, you know, by being influenced by, by Kiss. Uh, I would have the flash paper sitting on a little, on the amp on the side, and I would have a piece of paper there. And what I would use is I'd light the, the um, onion skin, or light the flash paper with my right hand, sweeping across to my right side from my left. And as I did so, I'd follow it with my left hand. And when I got right about to the middle of, in front of me, I would then squeeze like Spider-Man in the palm of my hand when he'd shoot his web. Mm -hmm. It was the same principle, except out of my wrist. It would go out of my finger. And I would squeeze that bottle, and the powder, the, the dragon's breath, would shoot out of the tube. And I'm, as my igniter, I'm using what's left of the flesh paper before it burns out in my hand. It all happens in, in a flash of, a, of like a second and a half. You have to move that fast. And then at that point, I pull my right hand away, 
and as I squeeze, it would shoot the flame out of my finger. So that's that's kind of where I, I you know, I'd see an idea and I'd adapt on that. Of course, you know, it became like a friendly competitiveness within the band. I couldn't just see myself as, as just Joe Ordinary on stage. Here I am watching the guys in Kiss when they formed and created themselves. I'm thinking, Martian rock band, what can I be in this band? I, I, I... Hi, this is Rick Allen's Left Arm. You're listening to the Decibel Geek Podcast. an identity, a character of some kind. One of the songs that, that the, the, the band leader wrote, his name was uh, Sebi. Uh, he's now called the, the Great Sebastian. He does like psychic uh, stuff and card stuff at parties and things in New York. So he's a, an entertainer of, of, of sorts. Sebi would had these, these lyrics where he would introduce the members of the band and say like what planet they were from or where they were from in space or whatever. And the line was the bass players from Mercury. I'm like, okay, well, I can be from Mercury, but Mercury is a hot planet. You wouldn't find a lizard there. But couldn't change the lyrics because that's the way it was written. Yeah. So um, I was experimenting with, with stuff down in my basement, uh, as I did. And I used to get this little uh, metallic green eyeshadow and these little tubes. So I smeared this stuff on my chest. I, I put Dermawax over my eyebrows. And I redrew my eyebrows, kind of going up at an angle, almost like like Mr. Spock on Star Trek. And I would color myself with this, you know, where my skin was exposed, to this metallic green cream. And and I'd use a blue color over the eyes and blue on the lips. And just for effect, you know, genes spit blood, right? Well, uh, since I'm green, amphibious looking, uh, I would put a couple of drops of green food coloring in my mouth. So now... My, my entire inside of my mouth is green, including my tongue. So you see, you can see where I'm drawing my influences from with Kiss, but I'm creating a, a whole new character from space. And I, I got a, a black dance skin leotard, put rhinestones on it, and I got these little silver uh, epaulets uh, uh, on my shoulders, like little shoulder wings, smaller than what Ace had, much smaller. Yeah. And, and like that, I had a silver sash, and I got these silver platform boots that came up past the ankles that... It's like a wedged platform, like kind of like Ace's boots, and they had like these uh, uh, studs in the platforms that looked like uh, from the gloves and rollerball. Yeah. And I took a black eyeliner pencil and I started to draw scales on my ch- my stomach, working way up to my chest. And and I looked in the mirror and I got a little streak, a streak, and tipped silver in my hair, and I was like, "Well, there you have it. There's there's the lizard." And that's how I create. Now, once once the band leader saw that, he wasn't he never wore face makeup. Now and he went from from uh, uh, I think from a silver jumpsuit to a purple jumpsuit, and he started painting white and black on his face, making you know some type of character. So it it it, it blossomed and, and evolved and morphed from there. Yeah. And and we did uh, you know several shows in the Manhattan area in the club scene, uh, uh, Max's Kansas City. Uh, we opened for Neon Leon's Rainbow Express, and Leon was a you know real well known name in the crowd at the time. And part of the whole Chelsea Hotel uh, crowd that hung out there. And there was a club across the street from the Chelsea Hotel on 23rd Street called Mothers. We played there. We played CBGBs. You know, so we were we were getting out there, and I was becoming known on the map, if you will, in, in the New York uh, uh, underground and, and above-ground uh, rock scene. I added a little bit of this glam and, and, and theater to what I was doing, and, and that's how I created myself. And you know, created that lizard creature uh, so much so that 
David Bowie's photographer at the time, who hung out at the club when he was in town, Lee Black Childers, he was so taken with this that he came up to our loft and, and did a photo session with us. And, of course, one of the pictures wound up in uh, Roxine Magazine. Okay. Which was pretty cool. So, you know, that's kind of where the lizard character came from. So, is there any is there any video of this Martian band playing? Boy, I wish. <laughs> there, there was no such thing as, as what we know it now as video. Uh, the yeah. only video was limited to uh, television. Yeah. Oh, in the stages. Well, let me ask you, because I'm too young to have been around at the point. I was I was a little kid at this point, but uh, if I the era and area you grew that you grew your career in that New York of the early to mid '70s, that's one of the eras that I would love to time travel to actually be involved with. Because I'm reading the stuff that you know when you were interviewed before about hanging out with the Dolls and the Ramones and the Brats and all these groups. I mean, what was it like to be a part of that whole scene? Magic. It was to be in the middle of, of history being made and not realizing that it's history being made without the, the obvious goofy humor attached to it. It's kind of like, like a Forrest Gump thing. You know, it's being in the right place at the right time, rubbing shoulders with the right people. I was barely out of high school and, and certainly not of, of legal club age to get in. And I would, by walking in with the right people and getting the guys at the door to remember who you were, or creating a fake ID of some kind, you know, to, to get you in there. Having a good BS story would get you into the clubs, you know, as long as you weren't drinking and, and they would get trouble. So in, in uh, going to see Kiss at the Coventry in Queens and photographing them and going to see Spike, which was uh, uh, Kiss's management, uh, Sean Delaney was working on it as a side project, not only with stars, but with a group called Spike. Mm -hmm. I was working for them. I went and took pictures. So I, they started seeing me coming into Coventry all the time as a photographer, so I would get in all the time. And I went to, I was at the bar, and I'm hanging out there, and I see David Johansson, and I see Johnny Thunders, and, and there's this guy sitting at the bar with kind of a shag haircut, and, and I heard somebody say Jerry, and, and that was, of course, Jerry Nolan. Well, he was still alive. Yeah. And I went up to him. I'm, I'm wearing, like, my, my favorite cranberry-colored satin pants and a you know flashy top. I was, you know... It wasn't looked down upon at that time in, in you know in the, in the in the scene. Yeah, dress dress like you were a, a performer. Nope, they didn't invent the name poser back then, and, and there was no such thing. If you dressed flashy, you were accepted as part of the crowd. So you know everybody wanted to be a star. So nobody frowned at you, nobody looked down at you, nobody uh, insulted you by dressing flashy because everybody dressed flashy. Yeah, everybody wanted to look like they were in a band or, in a, or being a star, so it was accepted. Yeah, and you know it helped break the ice a little bit too and level the playing field. You know, I, I sat next to Jerry and he said, "I'm a friend of Peter Chris's. I understand you're a friend of his." He goes, "Your friends with Pete?" Shakes my hand. Hey, how you doing? You know, nice to meet you. Yeah. At the time, I was dating one of Peter's sisters, so fate had must have put me in the right places at the right time for for a reason. I could not foresee, but here I am rubbing shoulders with the New York Dolls, Wayne County, like you said, the Ramones, the Brats, the Planets. I went to the early Kiss shows at the Diplomat. I got to see these bands, and it was just like, it was like a kid in a toy store. Wow! I imagine stepping out of Brooklyn and going into this scene in Manhattan and Queens and seeing this at the tips of my fingers. I was like, unbelievable to be yeah. able all of this magic happening right before me. 
Sort of as, uh, as David Lee Ross said, it was a great time to be alive, right? Absolutely. No doubt about it. Proving to the world that Nashville is about more than banjo picking and sister banging, this is the Decibel Geek Podcast. Well, I, I hope you know that now that you've mentioned that you shot photos of Kiss in these early days, you're going to have so many Kiss nerds coming after you for pictures now. Well, it's funny you should say that, Chris, because over the last several decades, a lot of people found out and knew that I was one of the first and only people to see Kiss form from the ground up uh, as part of a small elite clique of people. I mean, you know, Lydia Chris was there, of course, Peter's wife, uh, and, and Peter's sisters. Uh, there was a friend of ours who lived around the corner, a girl named Anne Marie Hughes. She's on Facebook. She was there. We were we had this whole little clique of people that would go watch Kiss perform and you know, rehearse in their loft and hang with them and, you know, and such like that. So over time, you know, and, and by taking pictures of Kiss, over time, it, the word got out that, hey, he was he watched Kiss form. He was there when it when it was created, and yet when all of these Kiss authors were writing their books on Kiss decades later, nobody was coming knocking on my door asking me about what it was like and you know pictures and such and so forth. Mm-hmm. And I was one of the only people that apparently took pictures of Kiss at the Fillmore East at that famous press show that they did right. for Neil Neil Bogart and Casablanca as their introduction to the world. You know, so those pictures. Uh, me not realizing, just being a nice guy that I am, loaning the negatives here or making a copy for somebody there, you know, because uh, in high school, I had I was in the photo club, so I had access to the photo lab. I had unlimited amounts of, of photographic tools at my fingertips for my camera. I had unlimited access to de- developing paper, whatever. So I was taking pictures left and right, and I was developing stuff left and right. And over time, my my property found its way into the hands of other people trying to claim credit to them. Oh, jeez. No. There was a picture that I had taken for me with my own camera by, by one of Peter's family of a picture of me and Peter together standing there the, the day after he got signed. I and mean, he was like, he, you could tell he had a couple of drinks in him. Mm-hmm. Here's, here's Peter and I together. And years later, it was, it was coming out in magazines. Here's a picture of Peter, Chris, and Rick Derringer. Oh, wow. You know, and I was like, where did this come from? You know, and then I started to find the names of people who are out there, like using my material for their own purposes, their own glory, their own credit. You know, and and of course not mentioning me in it at all. Yeah. Until so many years later, uh, I got contacted by a magazine from Sweden called Destroyer, and they said, "Listen, we understand that these we have some pictures that we would like to ask you about. That allegedly you took pictures of the kiss at at the Fillmore East." I said, yes, those are my pictures, and a lot of them were stolen. And they said, well, we'd like to ask you permission if we could use those pictures in the magazine. And I said, under this condition, that you put in there to all the people in the KISS Army and KISS fans around the world, that these pictures were mine. I took these. My name should be on them. And I know, you know you're not paying me for the pictures. I don't know what my legalities were, my rights were within being paid for, for the printing of my pictures. But at that point, I said, I just wanted to clarify for the record for all your readers that these pictures were mine and that they were stolen a long time ago. And over the years, they were used by other people for their own purposes, and I got no credit. He said, sure, we can do that. And, and he sent me a copy of the magazine when it came out, and of course, it's all in Swedish. But 
he he kept to his word and he put in there exactly what I asked him to do. So you know, all, it was only in the last you know within the last five or so years, I think that uh, a couple of people started to mention my name to to other uh, Kiss authors, and I uh, uh, accessed here and there by somebody asking me questions about Kiss, and finally, for the record. Uh, very recently, I was interviewed by uh, KISS author uh, Ken Sharp for his upcoming book on KISS, The Early Years. This is like, you know, from the very beginning until around 1973, I think. Mm -hmm. I'm still in high school at the time. Yeah. So uh, uh, he's got, we're going to have exclusive pictures uh, that I took of KISS at the Coventry. And I think some of my Fillmore East pictures are going to be in there as well as an interview. So I'm finally going to get some recognition and, and just uh, do validation, uh, uh, you know, in there. And, and it's it's coming, you know, a couple of decades late, but it's coming finally. Well, that's that's great that Ken's doing that. And, I mean, I've read everything that he's done on KISS, and he's definitely the right author for that kind of book. So, And I found out about your KISS connection through Lydia Chris's book that came out with, uh, and a lot of people may not know this, especially if you don't have the book, that you uh, wrote the very first review of Kiss. Yes, uh, in my high school newspaper. Yeah, it's a review of Wicked Lester's record, and it's it's really it's Kiss's record, but that they I don't think they had changed their name yet. Right, they were still on the border of, of Wicked Lester Kiss, but uh, you know I in watching them rehearse, and and you know being there and and uh, having access to the songs right off the bat, I knew these guys were going to be big. I didn't. I couldn't ever tell how big, but they were going to be big. What I tried to do was book them to play at, the, at my high school for like I think it was for like at the, at the time it was a lot of money, three hundred dollars. Mm-hmm. I was on the dance committee. They would review bands to have come in and play it at the dances and such. And I said, we got to have this in the auditorium like a concert. We we this you have to have this band come in. They'll play like maybe five or six songs. And and it was getting close, really close. And Gene was getting excited. I was getting excited. And uh, apparently, at the last minute, the, the, you know, the, the teachers are just kind of went, well, you know, I don't know. We really don't know about this, and we don't know who this band is, and we don't know that much about them. And 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 I was pushing hard, hard to get get them to convince to have Kiss play there. And at the last minute, they said, no, I think we're just going to pass on it. So I felt bad. I was disappointed. You could really hear it in Gene's voice. Called my house, uh, <laughs> and he was disappointed. And I said, you know, you have to at least appreciate my enthusiasm. What I'm trying to do here. Yeah. So what happened was when I was, I was between a rock and a hard place in trying to convince other people that I knew my age, my peers, of what was coming. Mm-hmm. I, and, and I would get ridiculed. I would get mocked. People would make fun of me, and I'm like, you don't understand. You, this band, you have no idea. You've never seen anything like this. Um, I guarantee you, for the Fillmore East show, what I did was, in high school, I made up what looked like little mimeographed uh, tickets. I think the show was free, if I'm not mistaken, because it was a press press event. Mm-hmm. But just to prove to people that this thing really existed, it was like a miniature version of a flyer in, in a 3 by 5 format, something like that, 3 by 4 format. And I drew the logo, and it's just appearing, Fillmore East, you know, admit one, like that. And I made up a bunch of these, and I handed them out to, to people in school. Well, you know, uh, before showtime, was that, I don't know if it was that day, or was that one of the rehearsals? Paul and Gene go, give me the, come here, we want to talk to you. 
and we're out in the middle of the Fillmore East, in the middle of the seats, and they sit me down, and they hold up one in front of me, and they go, you want to talk to us about this? I said, I'm trying to convince people who you are. I'm trying to, you know, it was my idea of, of, of an adolescent at that age, trying to show them how difficult it was to, to promote them, to get people to come and see them, to get my friends to come and see them. And, and I got in trouble for that. Paul's like, we ought to sue your ass six ways from Sunday. You realize what kind of trouble you're going to cause? You realize Gene's like, we're going to sue you, and we're going to sue you, and we're going to sue you. But you're lucky because the age you are, we're not going to sue you. And I'm like, they're talking down at me condescendingly as if I, I committed some kind of crime instead of seeing the bigger picture. I'm yeah. surprised Gene didn't, didn't, couldn't stand back and see this, of what I was trying to do as a, as a young promoter, without being a promoter, actually, the title, but trying to, to get people to come and see them. You know, and, and they got ticked off at me for that, you know, and, and it, they held it against me for a long time. But well, I, I guess over time they forgot. They let it go. But, you know, <laughs> come the time when the kids played the sunshine in, and I think some of my pictures from there are going to make it into Ken's book, uh, if I'm not mistaken. You know, I had painted uh, a rendition on the back of a denim jacket of a picture of Kiss in New York City uh, piled up against a bus stop sign and pulled up over the top of them, kind of pushing the his wind out of his hair to the side. I took that picture and I painted that on the back of my jacket. And then I took something from, I think, Hotter to Hell had just, just hit the stands. And I painted something from the album on the back of my buddy's jacket. And we went all the way from New York, all the way down to New Jersey, to the Sunshine Inn to see Kiss. And after the show, Gene catches a look at the back of my jacket, grabs me by my shoulder and drags me over to Bill of Coin. And he goes, Gee, look, see this? Do you see this? Do you see the potential of this? This guy painted us on the back of his jacket. And he grabs my buddy, my, my friend Joey, and goes, look at this. Look at these two guys. Do you see what kind of marketing this is? <laughs> you know, using me for, citing me as an example of, of, because I was the only one out there doing this. Oh, gosh. Gene, Gene has not changed at all over the years. <laughs> he was always the businessman. Wow. Seeing the potential in things. Why, why he couldn't use that kind of same mentality over the, the little tickets that I made up. I don't understand. But I, I got back in their graces, you know, with stuff like that. And I made my own little hand-painted kiss buttons, or I would paint, like, their makeup in reverse. I'd paint black faces with the white makeup on, one of which made it into uh, a couple of kiss albums as, as fan-generated uh, uh, material and things like that. You know, so it was the little small roles I played in, in the history of that back then. So... Like I said, several decades later, now I'm going to guess start getting some some validation on that. So it was like, yeah, it was it was a whole whole magic thing to be in the right place at the right time. Key like a little key linchpin in the wheel, so to speak. I do not, for one, think that the problem was that the band was down. I think that the problem may have been that there was a Stonehenge monument on the stage that was in danger of being crushed by a dwarf. All right, that tended to understate the hugeness of the object. But how you, you go from that great era of New York, and then what changed to get you to move out to Los Angeles? Well, playing played the New York scene for a while, and then uh, hang, hanging out in the clubs. Uh, when, after I, I got out of the Martian rock band, I was working in a, in a clothing store 
a few doors down from Electric Lady Studios in the village in Manhattan. In walks this guy with long hair and his, his girlfriend or wife. And we got to talking. You know, I got the look. He's got the look. And, and he says, yeah, I play in a band out in New Jersey. And, and we do all kinds of, you know, hard rock, top 40, Alice Cooper, David Bowie, Mata Hoople stuff, and Kiss. And I, I said, oh, yeah, I know the guys in Kiss. He goes, you do? I said, oh, yeah. I used to watch him rehearse. And I started telling the story of, in its limited form back then. I automatically struck a chord with this guy because, you know, they were Kiss fans, him and his wife, big Kiss fans. He, he says, you musician? I said, yeah, I played bass in the Martian rock band. He goes, really? He says, you know, we're looking, I think, to replace the bass player we got. I'm like, oh, here we go again. <laughs> now it's a Jersey band. Turns out the band is called Virgin. Okay. Virgin was the lesser competition to a really huge band in Jersey called Harlow that had the show with Alice Cooper with the snake and the smoke and Bowie and, and it was pretty much almost the same material that Virgin did. And platform shoes and makeup and glam and the whole thing, you know. Like it was right out of England, you know. Mark Boland meets David Bowie meets whatever, you know. And, and so uh, I, I, they set up an audition. They come to Manhattan, neutral ground. And uh, I go into the bathroom. I put on the lie liner. In comes this this six foot I don't know what guy with, with looked like David Bowie, blonde hair, platforms, standing next to me in the mirror, putting eyeliner on. He goes, uh, "So you're the guy trying out for the band, huh?" I'm like, "Yeah." He goes, "I like it already." The guy goes into the bathroom for an audition and puts eyeliner on. He goes, "You got my vote." And uh, and he said, "I want to tell you, I, I do stage moves, I do theatrics. If I come up and and." position you or something while you're playing, don't freak out. It's part of the show. I'm like, okay. Now, we've all seen early Kiss where Gene looks like he's he's sitting on Ace's leg while they're playing. Like, they would do this sandwich pancake effect with each other. Paul would, Ace would be in the middle, like in Black Diamond. Paul would come up from behind Ace, Gene would come up in the front, and the three of them, and Gene's making faces, sticking out his tongue at Ace, and that kind of stuff. So I figured, okay, well, I know it's part of the show, so I'm not going to get creeped out by this. So we, we audition. I'm playing some cover songs with them. And, and the singer's doing the same thing to me. He's like, you know, putting his leg under my legs or putting, you know, I'm, I'm getting like really close, almost uncomfortably close. But I keep playing and, and we, we start kind of like laughing and, and smiling and it's okay. So I'm not like, the guy's not going to like touch me or anything. Okay, this is kind of working out. It's cool. He likes me. The guitar player's like, well, he needs a little work. And I, I, I did. I, I could use some polishing. And I hadn't played cover material like that before. So singer says, work with him. Go to his house, do whatever it takes. I want him in the band. So they come over to my house from Jersey. They're teaching me the songs. Next thing you know, I'm in Jersey. I'm in the band Virgin. We're playing clubs. And I, I got eight-inch platforms. I got all my costuming. And, and, and in, of course, 75, 76, here's Angel. And I'm enamored. Never seen a band that looked like this before. And I start to create a white outfit that was kind of like a, a, a spin-off of what Mickey Jones was wearing. I, I didn't really have any good clear shots of what his costume looked like, but the fact he had, you know, wings, the white fabric wings and the whole bit. And I created my own version of a Mickey Jones type of costume. My hair was the same color, was the same cut. So I would that would be my, my I was going, now I went from, from a lizard to an angel. <laughs> And we were doing this, so we were getting real big in the clubs, and, and it, was, it was working out really good. Uh, the guy who introduced me to the band wound up being fired, and we brought another guy in, and, you know, members changed. I brought in another drummer, who was my friend Basil, Basil Stanley. 
and we were we were the shit in the clubs, man. The, we were the shit. The, the, the girls, the guys, everybody loved us. We were we were doing really well at that point. I saw what the original Twisted Sister looked like, and this was before Dee Snyder, when Michael Valentine was their singer, and and uh, I think J.J. French was the only original member who who stayed after the lineup changed. But you know, these were again magical times. Now I'm I'm out playing, you know, like heavily with with this band and, and rehearsing all the time. And then uh, we eventually changed the name to Lust. And then, and then we, we we changed a member. We changed the name again to I think for a short time it was Swan. And then we were doing shows with Harlow. And then ultimately I came up with the name Sin, and I started drawing the logo with the snake. And, and that's how I came up with the name Sin. And we kept the name Sin. That's how we were from then on. From like 70, 76 on, I think we were sin, 77, something like that. And playing all the, you know, the Jersey clubs. And then uh, we got to the point of, around 1978, the singer got an offer to play drums in another band so he could make more money. So the band kind of broke up at that point. I was kind of floating around the New York scene. I started working uh, just to keep active. If I wasn't playing in a band or, or auditioning for somebody, I wound up doing lights. I was a lighting director for various bands at some of the clubs in New York. So, you know, Trigger, uh, Face Dancer, you know, a lot of these bands, they, they would do an album. They were like mid-range touring bands that were not yet in the big stages. They do the, the bigger clubs. So I'm doing lights for a lot of these bands or helping a, a group get signed, such as the case of a band called Sterling, which uh, uh, I worked for. I brought their attention to A&M Records. They got signed. A&M said, you got an open door, you know, this, that, and the other. And then, I wound up getting introduced by from a girl I was dating at the time. Uh, we went, went to upstate New York on the border of Jersey and went to see this club band called the E. Walker Band. And they were playing all the top 40 stuff and rock and roll. and you know, everything from what I, what I said was everything from Joe Jackson to Judas Priest. And uh, we started talking, and, and here it comes again. You know, uh, we'd, we'd like to replace our bass player. Boy, I haven't heard this already. You know, so they said, here's the songs. You have three days. And they gave me like some 80 songs to learn in three days. Wow. A set list. Yeah, you know, which would rotate all this, this. So I'm wood shopping. This is on a Sunday night. I'm wood, wood shedding, rather. Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday. Wednesday night was my debut with the, new, with this, with the E. Walker Band at one of the biggest clubs in New Jersey. And I walk in. Uh, they made arrangements for the roadie guys to come pick up my gear uh, from my apartment. And uh, I walk in. As they're telling the bass player, he's out. Oh wow! You know, and I'm like, I'm taking note of this because I find out later I'm number seven out of eight bass players in this band. So they've been going through guys over over time, but they're a popular band and they, they play six nights a week. So now this is my day job. I'm playing six nights a week, you know, for cash, and uh, you know, I'm replacing this guy. I felt bad for him, but you know, I brought the whole new look and image to their band. And here's like, you know, you have a, the band leader who wears spandex pants, no shirt and no shoes, barefoot. Okay. You got a keyboard player who wears nice slacks, a nice shirt buttoned down with a vest and a tie. He plays keyboards and guitar. He's got a you know, rock and roll haircut. Looks like a, a rock and roll banker. And you got a drummer who looks like a surfer. Blonde curly hair, big flashy white smile, and a huge set of North drums that look like, you know, horns. And here comes, you know, the Punky Meadows Jr. lookalike. <laughs> We're playing the clubs, and I'm, I'm got my whole. Now I got a white outfit. I mean, you know, uh, white spandex jacket, white spandex pants, the white boots. You know, 
the whole schmear. Who's in the crowd? Patty Brandt. Patty Brandt happens to be uh, Barry Brandt's cousin, the drummer from Angel. How close is that, you know? And she's taking pictures of me, sending me the, the pictures to Barry. Meanwhile, of course, Angel had played New York several times, and I got close enough to hang and talk with him. So my name is now being floated around amongst the Angel camp. And uh, so I'm playing with E. Walker for about a year. We go up to Canada. We play as a, as a band called Spitfire. We're playing originals. Um, we come back. You know, there's, it's just, it happens. There's friction in the band. I wasn't a pot smoker. These guys were. They, they 420 left and right. I wasn't a partier. So there was always that little bit of divide between them and I as a fully accepted member. Um, so I wound up leaving the band and got picked up by a guitar player who had just put out a song on Mike Varney's uh, U.S. Metal series, mm-hmm. a name Dave Ferrara, who uh, put out a song called Aggressor on, on one of Varney's albums. I forget how we met. I guess the girlfriends met each other in the club and got to talking. And, and he says, hey, uh, you want to put a band together? And I said, well, I got a name. I got a following. I'm right out of E. Walker. So what do you think is going to open the door here? Your song on Varney's album or me here? And, we, and it's uh, suffice to say we, we agreed on, on uh, you know, here's, uh, here's a, we called the band Aggressor, uh, featuring Rick Fox, formerly V. Walker. So that's what you do. That's publicity to, to bring in the crowd, you know. And we started playing some of the rival clubs, and and we did, we did even heavier top forty. Everything from Scorpions, Priest, Rush, Van Halen, the best heavy metal songs that that were popular at the time of 1981. And we were crowd pleasers. We were real crowd winners. The club owners loved us. We were really starting to pick up some momentum. And at that point, while well, with Aggressor, I had to go back to doing a day job because I wasn't playing six nights a week anymore. Here I am. Working in the village again, not far from Electric Lady, right up the street, in the same street. In comes these three, four kids who are from California. Well, there you have it, folks. That's uh, my conversation with Rick Fox, formerly of Wasp, Steeler, and Sin, and the Forrest Gump of rock and roll. And uh, all I can say is, wow, I mean, what a great history and what a cool guy. So I uh, enjoyed having him on. want to thank him again. And you're going to be hearing more of him on some other shows that we're going to do. And I uh, can't wait to have him back on the show again. And that was my cat you're hearing in the background if you pick that up. Uh, follow us online at www.dbgeekshow.blogspot.com. Follow us at Twitter at DecibelGeekPod and Facebook.com slash DecibelGeek. Or you can email me at NashvilleRock at Live.com and tell me I completely suck and should hang this up. That's fine. I'll keep doing it just to annoy you. So, uh, again, thanks again for tuning in, and we'll see you next time. No, I don't want to hear that Nickelback song again. Really? This is a Decibel Geek Podcast.